0: Michelle Young.
1: And I'm Sam Tracy.
0: And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy,
1: an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs.
0: Every week on This Week in Drugs, We hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy.
1: And hopefully have some fun while we're at it.
0: We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news from the last week, a couple of quick-hit headlines, and a forecast of upcoming events in the weeks ahead. Then, it's time for the first installment of December's Drug of the Month, where we'll go over an introduction to alkyl nitrites, also known as poppers. Then, we're back with a roundtable discussion, this time with Kayvon Kalibari to talk about social cannabis use and other social policy issues affected by the cannabis industry. So thanks for joining us for Episode 73 of This Week in Drugs.
1: Now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where we're gonna talk about some of the biggest drug news stories from the last week and there are a lot of them and some exciting things that are coming on up. Uh, so Rochelle, do you wanna start things off with the first story?
0: Yeah, so our first story is some major, really exciting news. Um, On Tuesday, the US Food and Drug Administration approved phase three clinical trials for the use of MDMA as treatment for PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder. So this is the final phase of trials required before the possible approval of MDMA as a prescription medication. And we've discussed, we have discussed these ongoing trials before, um, in particular with some roundtable guests like James Casey, who's a veteran and founder of the Psychedelic Club, who himself successfully underwent MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, mm-hmm. um, and also Natalie Ginsburg, who is the policy and advocacy manager of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Research. MAPS is actually the nonprofit organization that's sponsoring the phase two clinical, or that sponsored the phase two clinical trials, uh, which included one hundred and thirty patients and focused on treating combat veterans, sexual assault victims and police and firefighters with PTSD Um, all of their patients had not responded to prescription to traditional prescription drugs or psychotherapy and so this was kind of um, a last resort and and so maps will also be sponsoring the phase three clinical trial so this is very exciting for them
1: Yeah, this is a huge piece of news and something that I've been a little bit intimately familiar with. Uh, I want to give a little shout out to my awesome partner, Charlotte, who's been working on these trials. And so I've been getting to hear a little bit there about uh, how exciting it was for this to finally get to phase three. And and there has been so much good coverage of it. Um, Mostly on the good side, there is, of course, a little bit of uh, bad reporting of, you know, calling MDMA ecstasy and that sort of thing. But it has overall been really positive and which is nice to see groups like the new york times uh covering this very seriously and as as a way to really show that this is the next step in in drug development for people who uh, suffer from ptsd that really this is one of the few things out there that has really any chances of, of helping those people and so it is fantastic that this is one step closer and now hopefully very very close to to getting actually approved
0: yeah so the patients who um had participated in the phase two clinical trials on average struggled with their symptoms for over 17 years, um, so these are very mm-hmm. serious cases of PTSD. And as I'm sure, like Charlotte told you, uh, during the trials, this isn't just about giving someone like an ecstasy pill and having them go rave and then they feel better the next day mm-hmm. because they've partied so hard, right? Like that's kind of the flip image that a lot of um, critics have of these of the MDMA therapy. But how it actually works is that patients um, take the MDMA in conjunction with, like traditional psychotherapy, where they're guided by a therapist and they're not just um, rolling on this drug. It, it's actually part of a therapeutic process. Um, and so the results from the clinical two, from the phase two clinical trials appear to be that um, patients reported a 56 percent decrease of severity of symptoms on average um, after three three sessions or three doses of MDMA.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is seriously incredible news because, yeah, by the end of the study, two-thirds no longer met the criteria for having PTSD. So I know people are usually very careful about using the word cure versus treatment. But, I mean, in that sense, it does basically sound like a cure. I mean, there's more research to be done. But if this can actually take people who have PTSD and help them no longer meet those criteria, that is something that really no other drug on the market can do here. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it's
0: a, it's a, it's that they're treated long term, not just the day of or the day after.
1: hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this is very exciting. We'll definitely be, be keeping tabs on that. Uh, but moving on into our next story in the world of already legal drugs, uh, the CEO of Philip Morris, which is the largest cigarette company on the planet, uh, has said in an interview with BBC that he thinks the company is eventually going to phase out cigarettes completely. Uh, So this was in a conversation with a reporter about a new vaping product that the company was unveiling. Uh, And so the actual quote here was, and quote, I believe there will be a moment in time when we would have sufficient adoption for these alternative products to start envisaging, together with governments, a phase out period for cigarettes. And I hope this time will come soon. End of the quote. So this is really interesting to me for a a few different reasons. But for one thing, they're just admitting that this is the direction things are going rather than trying to dig in their heels or say, uh, you know, argue that smoking tobacco, uh, you know, they've really given up the argument that like, oh, smoking is fine. Uh, But they've shifted (laughs) over to, okay, we're just going to focus on on vaporizing instead. Um, And so I wonder how much of this is, you know, PR versus their honest strategy, um, just because, I mean, there's a kind of similar thing going on with like oil companies investing in alternative energy. And Mm -hmm. in certain senses, it's like, oh, this is the future. And they want to dominate that market, too. But on the other hand, there are some weird incentives there of like, oh, maybe you want to develop or like patent new vape technology so that no one else can produce it. So you can keep selling cigarettes. It's, It's really anyone's guess there.
0: Right, I mean, this is, um like, the... It has secondary effects that are mm-hmm. harm-reductive, right? Because we know that vaping, or the majority of studies we've seen so far show that vaping are less harmful than traditional cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't seem like that's what's compelling Philip Morris to invest further in, vape, in vaping technology. They're not really concerned right. about the health concerns. They're just, like, sick of being the bad guys um, mm-hmm. promoting cigarettes. Um, so... This is, I mean, I guess this is good for public health overall. But I, like you said, I think it's just um, a smart strategic move so that they can continue dominating the market.
1: Mm-hmm. And one thing that I did find really interesting th- here too uh, was actually the type of smokeless tobacco product that they're pushing. Cause, so it's something called the IQOS. I don't know if that's supposed to be pronounced like ICOS or something or just initials. But rather than using nicotine fluid, which is pretty much... Um, every vaporizer uh, for nicotine at least that I've ever seen it actually uses little uh, like pre-made pre-packaged things of real tobacco in these little reloadable tubes that look like cigarettes and you pop it into this device and uh, you know it heats it up to to vaporize but not quite smoke so it's actually using real tobacco um, and even looks a little bit like a cigarette so I'm wondering if this might be um, assuming that it is as safe as the liquid which I don't know about any comparative studies on, but it's still vaporizing. So I think it's it's still definitely an improvement. Uh, maybe this could really help adoption from that last chunk of tr- uh, of smokers of traditional cigarettes uh, who, who maybe don't like the taste or something weird about like v- vaping liquid. And so they'll be mm-hmm. like, oh, this is real tobacco and, and are more comfortable with making that switch.
0: Yeah, if we can. Um, I, it's kind of interesting because it seems like the cannabis market is on the f- is leading in this Mm -hmm. case since um vaporizers that allow you to put the bud directly into the device already exist Um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people do find that there is a flavor or even a a difference in effect um between vaping uh raw like plant matter versus Mm -hmm. a, a liquid product
1: right yeah so definitely the cannabis industry probably created a lot of the devices that people will be using for tobacco later
0: That should be interesting to Mm -hmm. keep an eye on. So moving on to our next story. This one is rather unfortunate. Um, No, that's not. I'm sorry. I was looking at the wrong headline. This one is Mm -hmm. a good one, too.
1: (laughs) Foreboding for the future stories here.
0: (laughs) I know. Um, In the wake of Donald Trump's election to presidency Social justice advocates across the country Obviously are scrambling to protect A lot of the progress from the past eight years As well as push through some final Actions before President Obama officially Leaves office in January And that includes a coalition of criminal justice Reformers who have asked President Obama To expand the number of inmates eligible For clemency by granting Commutations to broad categories of nonviolent offenders without An individual review So currently inmates who meet certain criteria Have to file individual clemency petitions That are reviewed by several layers of officials At the Justice Department and the White House Before final approval And Uh, commutation by the president but the coalition which includes former judges prosecutors as well as groups like the NAACP criminal justice policy foundation and the sentencing project is asking Obama instead to grant sweeping commutations to entire groups of inmates possibly without the individual review of each petition like just if you fall into a certain category of offenders he would say yes to everyone who qualifies
2: Mm mm-hmm
1: And that is the one thing that's really been frustrating me so much about the Obama clemency work, Uh, just because, I mean, we've been covering it a bunch, and and one aspect has kind of been, I guess, a PR genius in terms of them like slowly doing it and getting these news stories all the time about Mm -hmm. uh, forgiving these uh, or at least shortening these sentences. But at the same time, it is so ineffective in comparison because there's so much paperwork. And, And so something much more along the lines of, Um, I think it was I forget which president, but who issued a a blanket pardon for everyone who dodged the Vietnam draft um, doing Mm -hmm. something like that, um, Mm -hmm. whether it's for, you know, marijuana uh, stuff, but also for all of these um, things that had to do with the the Fair Sentencing Act. It seems that just kind of a a, a blanket uh, policy is, is much more fitting there.
0: Yeah, and definitely um, inmates who are still serving time for disparate sentences that did not receive benefits under the Fair Sentencing Act. Those are especially like one category that this coalition uh, wants Obama to look at, but they're also asking him to consider uh, people with veteran status and also older inmates who may have aged out of criminality. Another cool piece to the story is that there is another open letter to President Obama also urging him to expedite uh, the clemency process, but this one came from the African American Mayor's Association, and essentially their message to Obama was, you know, we know that the criminal justice system and disparate sentencing has largely impacted our communities that we represent, African-American and low-income communities. Um, and they're telling him, like, we welcome these people back into our communities, even if they don't perfectly fit the criteria that you've set forth for clemency. Like, even if they haven't reached the 10-year um, period of incarceration, that's, like, one of mm-hmm. the criteria. Like, we want, we want our people to come home, yeah. which I think is very powerful.
1: Absolutely, because that really is like the you know pri- private organizations and nonprofits and community groups saying that we know you might not be able to, but we'll take up the slack and we really want to, to help these people get back on their feet. Just give us a chance to do so, which is actually kind of a perfect segue to the next story here, uh, which is about this, this uh, piece on uh, Bloomberg.com. They had a really interesting article on a project that's actually in Hartford, Connecticut, which is my home state. Um, And they're helping people who are formerly incarcerated for for drug dealing become entrepreneurs in other areas in order to both keep them out of jail and then, you know, help them become economically independent and and then be able to help other people. And so it's got a a good name. It's called Trap House, which is an acronym that stands for transforming, reinventing and prospering and is also obviously a reference to, to drug dealing terminology. And so the group was founded by a former drug dealer named Bashan Brown and helps people write business plans, make elevator pitches, find funding and, and start their own businesses uh, in a lot of different ways. And so one of the, the best quotes from this um, that I think was kind of the, also the subheader for the article was that uh, hustlers are entrepreneurs denied opportunity. Which I think makes so much sense and is exactly what we've said so many times on the show. Of just that, like, you know, given a different uh, environment and given access to capital, these are the same people that would be, you know, starting their own businesses elsewhere. uh, But just they're playing the hand that they were dealt. And uh, that was the best opportunity for them there. So this is like a really good way to harness that. Hard work and intelligence of of, uh, people who were in the drug dealing business to help them become successful elsewhere
0: Yeah, this is definitely a stark dichotomy that we see, especially in the cannabis uh, Industry that you and I have both worked in Mm -hmm. um, Where on one side of the legal line, we've got uh, Largely black and brown people who are incarcerated for Running these drug, like these marijuana businesses Mm -hmm. That have just like that were like pre- Legalization, right. And then on the other side, you've got successful entrepreneurs who are making like hands over fists and cash or so it seems, mm-hmm. um, you know, who are using those exact same skills that have put other people in jail before.
1: Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it is a sad thing with the marijuana industry that essentially it's kind of shifted because of how regulated it is that. The main things that get rewarded aren't necessarily, you know, customer service or operating a good business, but just the amount of capital that you have and how good you are at filling out paperwork and or hiring lawyers to do that for you. <laughs> and so it's very uh, unfortunate that that's the way things are getting warped now. Um, but hopefully, I mean, a, a, as things uh, progress, maybe out in Oakland, I know we've done some coverage there of, of them helping small businesses in the marijuana industry get started up. So maybe this could be a, a good opportunity for a collaboration there.
0: Mm -hmm. And so I know we don't have time for another story, but there is this um, research paper that I wanted to point out that is related to our past two stories. It was done Mm -hmm. by the Kaufman Foundation, um, and it's just a study on policy changes that are needed to uh, unlock employment and entrepreneurial opportunity for 100 million Americans with criminal records. So I think this is going to become more relevant if uh, wide sweeping clemencies are granted. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since a lot of people will come out with that uh, come out of that with criminal records.
1: Yeah, absolutely
0: So moving on to our quick hit headlines over the holidays the TSA clarified in response to a lawsuit from Alaska That it does not prohibit passengers from carrying marijuana through its security checkpoints as the TSA does not consider marijuana to be a security threat If found marijuana could still be turned over to local authorities But in legal states this would mean nothing happens if the passenger is over 21
1: And Congress is very close to passing a bill that would dedicate $1 billion in funding to the opioid epidemic across a wide range of different programs. House and Senate leaders have reached a deal on compromise language, but some, most notably Senator Elizabeth Warren, are still fighting back against specific provisions that they argue are a handout to Big Pharma.
0: Puerto Rico government agencies will no longer screen for marijuana on employee drug tests following an executive order by Governor Alejandro Garcia Padilla. Applicants seeking public employment will, however, continue to face screening for other illicit drugs.
1: The first needle exchange in Florida opened on December 1st, which was also World AIDS Day. It's operating in Miami and is run by a man named Dr. Hansel Tukes, who has been pushing for the state to allow it for over four years.
0: Over in Ireland... The lower house and principal chamber of the legislature, whose name I unfortunately can't pronounce, Mm -hmm. uh, passed a bill last week to legalize medical marijuana. This was the largest legislative hurdle uh, for medical marijuana. And a timeline is now in place for um, for access to patients in the coming months. So shout outs go out to our guest from two weeks ago, Graham DeBara, and Help Not Harm.
1: And researchers from New York University and Johns Hopkins University published results from two different studies on using psilocybin to treat anxiety and depression in cancer patients. About 80% of patients showed improvement, and this lasted around seven months from one single treatment.
0: And President-elect Donald Trump has invited Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte to the White House. This is a distressing sign that a Trump administration may even more vigorously support Duterte's extrajudicial killings of drug users in his country.
1: And finally, in an exit interview with Rolling Stone, President Obama commented on marijuana policy, saying, quote, I'm not somebody who believes that legalization is a panacea. But I do believe that treating this as a public health issue, the same way we do with cigarettes or alcohol, is the much smarter way to deal with it, end quote. Unfortunately, he didn't do anything about this while he actually had the power to do so.
0: Um, and finally, moving on to our weekly forecast. So in our first story today, we told you about the MAPS um, clinical research on MDMA. MDMA for PTSD and its approval for phase 3 clinical trials MAPS is actually still trying to raise funds, the funds they need to sponsor the research, so if you'd like to help make MDMA a prescription medicine, you can donate to MAPS they've raised nearly $65,000 so far and need to get to $174,000 total in the next 28 days, so if you want to help out this research uh, for you know potentially life-saving medicine, go to maps.org MDMA 2016 to donate
1: and finally, today, which is December 4th, is the Free Rossathon, which we mentioned in the advertisement slot last week. It's a live-streamed event with tons of great guests and is a project to raise money for Ross Ulbricht, founder of the Silk Road Online Marketplace, to file to appeal his conviction of life in prison. It's running until 10 p.m. Eastern, so if you're listening to this episode on the day that it came out, be sure to go over to freeross.org to watch. And whether or not you can catch it, any donation you can make will go a really long way to helping his family cover those costs.
0: And that's all for our weekly news and forecast. As always, Sam and I and the rest of the This Week in Drugs team have our eyes out for the biggest drug and drug policy news and headlines. But as you can see, there's so, so much going on every week that if there's any story that you think we may have missed or that you really want to hear about, please send it our way. Uh, we also especially love to hear about upcoming events and even votes that are coming up in your state, especially now with the legislative sessions rolling around in a month or so. So if there are any events that you want us to talk about in our forecast, please uh, reach out to us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com.
1: We don't have a paid sponsor this week, but if we did, this is where their commercial would be. Are you listening to this right now? Do you have a cool business, political campaign, website, pet cause, or literal pet that you want us to tell our hundreds of passionate listeners about? Then you're in luck. For a small fee to help cover our costs, you can get your very own 30-second ad that would go right here, be read by me, and be listened to by everyone who's hearing me say all of this right now. So if that sounds good to you, swing on over to thisweekindrugs.org and click on the sponsor button at the top to learn more. Now, back to the show.
0: now it's time for the drug of the month, where we take a closer look at the background science history and recent trends in a different drug each month. For our last drug of the month, we talked about dextromethorphan, or DXM, which is a common cough medicine that's often used recreationally for its dissociative effects, also known as robo-tripping. This month, we'll be examining a whole class of chemicals, particularly popular within the gay community, and known for their recreational their unique recreational use as preparation for anal sex. For December, our drug of the month is alkyl nitrites, also known as poppers. Different brands of poppers may vary in their exact content, but various alkyl nitrites that may be included are amyl nitrate, which was the original compound used, isobutyl nitrate, butyl nitrate, isopropyl nitrate, or various combinations thereof. For example, isopropyl nitrate became popular as a primary compound in 2007 due to a ban on isobutyl nitrate in the European Union. Poppers are usually sold in small cap bottles and huffed or inhaled for recreational purposes. Poppers do not exist in nature. Organic nitrites are prepared from alcohols and sodium nitrate in sulfuric acid solution. Then. Some chemistry happens, which Sam may or may not be interested in explaining to you next episode during the science segment. Um, then we have poppers. So it's unclear how or why alkyl nitrates were originally discovered. However, amyl nitrites in particular were first synthesized by French chemist Antoine Jérôme Ballard in 1844. Medically, amyl nitrites were traditionally used to treat angina pectoris, which is a chest pain due to insufficient blood flow to the heart muscle. Doctors would prescribe amyl nitrites to patients in capsules that were broken or popped in order to release the vapors. This would help to dilate the patient's coronary arteries, thus improving blood flow to the heart muscle. For chemically completely different reasons, amyl nitrites was also used medically as an antidote to cyanide poisoning. However, because nitrite's primary function is vasodilation, inhaling nitrites also relaxes smooth muscles throughout the body, including the sphincter muscles of the anus and the vagina. Hence, their use in enhancing or easing anal sex. Other physiological effects include increased heart rate and blood blood flow throughout the body, which produces a sensation of heat and excitement, and an immediate decrease in blood pressure when the blood vessels dilate. A very common warning amongst users of poppers is to not combine them with other sex drugs like Viagra, which is also a vasodilator, and when combined, may lead to dangerously low blood pressure, as well as fainting, a stroke, or a heart attack. All alkyl nitrites are inhalants because they have very low vapor points and become airborne almost immediately at room temperature. The most common method of taking poppers is to simply open the bottle, hold it under your nose, and inhale. Other methods of popper usage, such as oral ingestion, are extremely dangerous and can can potentially result in a coma or even death. Alkyl nitrites are also extremely flammable and, upon skin-to-skin contact, may cause chemical burns. The effects of the drug are intense but short-lived. They start after about 15 seconds and last for up to 3 minutes. Most alkyl nitrates lose their freshness within a few hours if the bottle is left open or not properly closed. In one Vice article about the use of poppers hilariously titled, Hey Straight People, You're Using Sex Drugs Wrong, the author describes the effects of poppers as follows. Mostly they make you feel dizzy and weird and head rushy. They also make you feel really warm all over, particularly in the face. You might even blush a little. The other thing you'll notice is, if you're using them in a sexual context, you will want every single one of your orifices stuffed at exactly that moment or to jam jam your various appendages in someone else's holes. They don't make you horny necessarily, they make you want to f**k. This particular article also notes that there are various brands of poppers, sold in differently marketed bottles and packaging. This is much like having different brands of liquor or alcohol or different strains of marijuana, which are intended to have slightly different effects. The author of the Vice article notes that Rush and Jungle Juice are probably the best known and both are pretty good, but that Leather Daddies prefer what they call English, which comes in a brown, unmarked bottle. According to the author, quote, that shit is intense. Poppers containing alkyl nitrites other than amyl nitrites are readily available in the United States, though amyl nitrite may still be possessed with a doctor's prescription. Poppers are typically sold in sex shops or head shops and may be purchased legally if marketed for commercial purposes, rather than for human consumption. Thus, in retail formulations, poppers are usually labeled as video head cleaners, nail polish removers, or room odorizers in the UK poppers gained vast media attention this past year when the psychoactive substances act of 2016 was passed conservative gay MP Crispin Blunt came out strongly against the law specifically because it would affect the legality of poppers blunt testified publicly that he had used and currently uses poppers an amendment to specifically exclude alkyl nitrites from the ban was voted down in Parliament however in March 2016 The Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs stated that because alkyl nitrites do not directly stimulate or depress the central nervous system, poppers do not fall within the scope of the Psychoactive Substances Act. So that's all for our introduction to poppers. Next week, Sam will be back with the science behind December's drug of the month. And now it's time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing Initiative 300, the Denver Cannabis Social Use Campaign, and some other social policy issues around the marijuana industry, with Kayvon Kalibari, the lead proponent of the initiative and a founder of Denver Relief Consulting. Thank you so much, Kayvon, for coming on today.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Um so just as some background information initiative 300 was a citizens initiative that you helped start that appeared on the ballot here in Denver this past November and it passed um after a couple stressful days of very very slow counting So we've talked about social cannabis use before uh, here on the show in a season two episode. And one of our guests was actually one of your colleagues, Emmett Reichstraffer. So our longtime listeners already know that there's a couple different models for what social use entails um, in places like Alaska or Oregon. And that social use... um, Laws typically fall into either a BYOC, like bring your own cannabis model, or an on-site consumption model. That's kind of more like a bar. So can you tell us a bit more about the specifics of Initiative 300?
3: Yeah. uh, So Initiative 300 would uh, create the opportunity for any business type. Uh, outside of current uh, state regulated cannabis businesses um, from applying for consumption areas, designated consumption areas to allow for cannabis consumption in accordance with the Colorado Clean Under Air Act. So uh, vaporization, edible consumption indoors, uh, combustion outdoors, uh, potentially in heated covered environments that people uh, have, at bars, generally for cigarette smokers, um, but it would create an opportunity for people to consume cannabis socially in a manner very similar to alcohol. Um, I uh, there was a lot of concern about the potential overlap with this consumption in alcohol establishments. We're seeing some uh, liquor enforcement division uh, rule changes at the state level uh, that would preclude cannabis consumption on liquor licensed premises, um, but I think that's either going to get flushed out or uh, it's, it's going to impact this initiative, but I don't think it's going to be very detrimental. I never saw uh, a lot of poly consumption. Uh, establishments coming into play. I think it'll be more uh, therapeutic uh, cannabis culture driven. I think there's a lot of new business ventures models uh, out there yet to be discovered that are people are going to play with them. So I'm I'm really excited for Denver to become that first city to to hopefully implement uh, social use cannabis and regulate it and uh, allow us to kind of stay at the forefront of this conversation on cannabis progress.
1: And that's really interesting that you mentioned there. And I don't think I'd heard that part before about not being allowed to have this apply to uh, state licensed marijuana businesses. So a dispensary, for example, under initiative 300 would still not allowed, uh, not be allowed to have both sales and consumption at the same place. Was that there because Amendment 64 or some other law forbids that or, or was that a decision that you made to keep those two things separate?
3: yeah there there wasn't supposed to be a consumption component to uh, the initial licensing structure. I don't think A64, 64 in Colorado precludes uh, this from being allowed, uh, but there were additional pieces that need to be created to do so. Um, so the state hasn't addressed that yet. So we're we're going for it at the city level. But we we were very uh, clear about it in our initiative uh, that those folks would be precluded. Um, so there is legislation right now occurring at the state level. Um, Jonathan Singer uh, got it through committee, uh, will be hopefully presenting it uh, this coming spring is also gentleman in Pueblo, a lobbyist uh, who's pursuing a second social consumption initiative. Uh, Jonathan Singers would create uh, tasting rooms similar to a uh, brewery tap room, uh, where mm. you could have dispensary owners uh, participate uh, by applying for these licenses and allowing single serving uh, smokable vapor, uh, vaporizable is that even a word, uh, edible <laughs> <laughs> uh, cannabis products to consume on site and, and leave, but it doesn't uh, allow for the entertainment options, the food, uh, the other things that I'd like to see incorporated with cannabis consumption, uh, which our initiative uh, does. And then the other model, uh, the Gentleman in Pueblo, I think it's going to be more of a private club model, similar to what normal was trying to pass in Denver this year.
0: I am intrigued by what you said about Um, the potential of not being allowed to consume both alcohol and cannabis in the same location, uh, giving way to a more therapeutic or cannabis culture um, because this does provide opportunities to other businesses that you might not think of as a traditional consumption room to allow cannabis consumption on site. And I'm thinking of places like yoga studios if they want to incorporate cannabis into their practice or even art galleries, you know, which sometimes serve wine during their... Um, during their openings, and they could maybe opt to have cam- cannabis instead. Um, have you heard from many business owners outside of like bars and restaurants who are interested in these types of licenses?
3: Yeah, and it, and it really is those more holistic uh, uh, businesses. At least from what I've seen, it's it, it's the yoga, yes, it's massage, um, it's physical therapy. I thought that was a really interesting one that somebody brought up that this could actually be beyond um, just ongoing wellness and actually. When you think about all the pain issues that we have and the opiate overdose and things like that, if people can start creating a little bit more healthy opportunity. Opportunities or options uh, for physical therapy—they might engage in that. Wouldn't be covered by insurance, I bet, and and we'd have to deal with all the Mm -hmm. same issues. But yeah, it opens the door to things I don't think people are thinking about. Whenever this was portrayed in the media, it was uh, bars are going to be allowed to uh, allow cannabis consumption on site, and that was just not the message that we wanted to create. We never talked Mm -hmm. about it that way. We pushed media to not talk about it that way. That's how people thought about it, unfortunately. Uh, But I also go back to comedy shows and yeah, your art, art galleries, and and I could think of a lot of uh, just creative uh, businesses uh, creative events uh, that would certainly benefit from having this you think larger festivals we could have a even though they're not allowed on the same premises have a cannabis consumption tent and have a an alcohol Mm -hmm. consumption tent and maybe if you have a wristband on you can't consume both i don't know Um, You know, there's ways that we can step into this and that's what I really like about our initiative is it allows us to step into this very slowly, have this conversation for the first time with all stakeholders involved and come to hopefully the the most reasonable solution for implementation here.
1: Yeah, it is really exciting to think about all the possibilities that could exist under Initiative 300 for everything from those more service oriented places like yoga that you were mentioning to a much more, I guess, kind of traditional or, or maybe even stereotypical is the right word, but like a Netherlands coffee shop sort of environment in which people can bring cannabis and, and just purchase uh, coffee and have it be a nice social environment in that way. And, and actually... Mm-hmm.
3: Oh no, okay. guys! I was just gonna say, yeah, for you know, students and studying, I can't, I can't, I, I, I can't uh, quantify the number of times that I've uh, been out to a coffee shop and just wanted to smoke really quick while working, while in one of those mm-hmm. six-hour screensaver work moments that we all mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and and so actually, I wanted to take a little bit of a step back here, too. And, and now that this is passed, talk a little bit about how you ended up getting to this place, because I remember uh, following another initiative last year uh, that some folks were pushing that I think even made the ballot, but then was pulled uh, in order to reach a deal with legislators or, or the city council, at least. But then that I, I suppose the Still ended up not happening because this initiative happened instead. Um, and, and so, what exactly is the the backstory there? Was it that the the city council was not willing to to go through with actually figuring something out, or was this just kind of a a better solution than uh, what they might have been thinking about? And so, it made sense to just have the voters do it.
3: Sure, you know, I was a, a sponsor of the last years as well, and mm-hmm. it was done very quickly. Uh, We collected the signatures The you know, the 30 days leading up to our deadline of being able to do so, Um, did so without a lot of media attention, without a lot of conversation on the topic. So when we made the ballot, uh, it was a bit of a surprise to everybody um, mm-hmm. that they, they just weren't ready for the conversation, didn't have a chance to review the language prior to uh, submitting it for approval to the elections division. We just didn't have the conversation. So city council, the chamber of commerce, the downtown Denver partnership, which is very powerful here on a business side of things and the mm-hmm. city image side of things, uh, did not feel comfortable uh, with us moving forward with this and, and pleaded and begged us essentially to pull it uh, from the ballot. So we said, Fine. Uh, we'd be happy to do that under one condition. You come out uh, publicly and say that you understand the need to remedy this issue of lack of social of public, or social consumption places for cannabis, and uh, you need to have this conversation in the spring city council session and start working towards a solution. And if you don't, we're going to put it on the ballot again the next year. Uh, So Mm -hmm. what did they do at Denver City Council, the mayor's office? They made it very difficult on the cannabis industry for things having nothing to do with this topic. They um, Mm -hmm. blamed us for concentration issues in poor neighborhoods here in Denver when they're the reason that we're there in the first place because of their zoning codes, putting us there seven Mm -hmm. years ago. Um, they, They did this under the guise of... Uh, these these poor these poor neighborhoods that you know for whatever reason they've neglected for the last 30 years but are now blaming uh, the the blight on us um, they they did it so they could have their I-70 expansion their interstate expansion their western stock show expansion they really got um, they really threw the cannabis industry uh, under the bus and didn't broach this mm-hmm. topic so what we said is we're gonna not only uh, put this back on the ballot but we're gonna do it in a manner that's considerate of the things that you're blaming on us right now. So we made it a a point to have a eligible neighborhood organization uh, support uh, that's necessary before you even apply with the city. So we have 192 of these organizations, registered neighborhood organizations, uh, business improvement districts, merchants associations uh, that can provide formal support. They can create conditions that become a condition of this license um, and. it, it, it allows this these businesses to integrate into these neighborhoods that have various concerns or various limitations on how they think these operations should should come to be um, so it was really saying you know this isn't even our problem but hey city we're gonna we're gonna get to the point uh, and have these conversations anyway so it's about the dialogue It's about pushing it forward, regardless of whose fault um, issues that currently exist in the city are, and uh, we're moving forward. But we're moving forward because there is the opportunity for people now in Colorado, but seven other states, uh, to purchase and possess cannabis. But we have not tackled the conversation of where people consume it. There's 77 million people, residents, uh, I'm sorry, tourists that come to Colorado every year that don't have a place to consume. And it often gets pegged as a tourist issue, but it's not. It's for residents as well that live in HOA or landlord controlled housing that don't have the opportunity to consume legally or for fear mm-hmm. of losing their place to live. Uh, there's folks that live in veterans housing or other federally funded housing. Veterans use a lot of cannabis that don't have a place to consume. Uh, there's people uh, that live with their children or grandparents or other people they don't want to subject to their consumption. They should have a, the opportunity uh, to go out and consume socially. Um, so that that was our, our reasoning for it. We've had public consumption tickets rise dramatically uh, here in Denver. and they're, there is the, this conversation of public consumption tickets that weren't created until Amendment 64 was created. Uh, public mm-hmm. consumption was cited as possession tickets prior to that, but nonetheless, we've seen a, a, a large increase in that and disproportionately affecting people of color. Uh, so if you're black in, in Denver, you're 2.6 times more likely to be cited or arrested uh, for a cannabis infraction, primarily uh, small possession or public consumption. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it, this, this crosses a lot of areas of need and affects a lot of people. and uh, in in that process of us uh, putting it back on it, being the bigger people by doing the RNO piece, we also engaged everybody. And we chatted with with the mayor's office and we chatted with city council and neighborhood organizations and consumers and non-cannabis businesses and the cannabis industry and all the organizations that got input and got Mm -hmm. buy-in and brought everybody to the table. And now we have something that really got very little resistance uh, in its passing. And I think is gonna have a fair chance at fair implementation. Um, because we've engaged everybody we're going to continue to do that Uh, so really Mm -hmm. proud of just the approach our team took and i I hope that it's an example for other cannabis folks looking for progress to do in a similar fashion because it doesn't need to be a war like it is even in california with the industry fighting with itself Mm -hmm. Uh, let's work together we got a lot to do still
0: um i like that there are a couple things you said i mean there are a lot of stuff you said that i liked but in the beginning especially that um the campaign last year even had the credibility with city council to be able to come into negotiations, like even though it didn't or the mayor's office, even though it didn't pan out in the way we expected. You know, I think it shows a maturity and an evolution in the way marijuana campaigns are conducted, that it's not just, um, you know, you're fighting your enemy and, and And it doesn't matter what they want, um, that you can come to the table and talk about um, compromises and solutions, even though in this case it ended up we had to put it back on the ballot. But the other thing I really like that you said was um, that social consumption spaces are not just there to serve tourists that there are so many residents who can't take advantage of their constitutional rights here in Colorado because they don't have a place to consume and oftentimes these are drawn along class and socio-economic lines like you said people who depend on um, you know the HOA's or landlords or veterans housing or uh, rent controlled spaces may not be able to consume at home like most people who have the privilege of owning their own home um, you know, may be able to do without without thinking about how um, that that is something that not everyone can benefit from and that this gives spaces to people to be able uh, to use cannabis regardless of their housing situation. Um, I know that you've been doing some other social work and you've kind of you kind of like implicitly connected this to existing uh Economic issues that Denver is dealing with but you're also working on homelessness issues um, Here in Denver. Uh, There's a major movement um, Within the city to sweep out the homeless from Denver Um, And I know you kind of said that this wasn't the marijuana industry's fault But do you see a connection there is that is or is it just a personal interest of yours that has nothing to do with this industry? that you helped build
3: Yeah, you know, I think uh, on the first note of whether this is the cannabis industry's fault, uh, I don't think it is. But regardless, it's another one of those issues that the city is blaming on the cannabis industry. And now that's being perpetuated in the media. So, again, regardless of whether it is our fault or not, I think we're obligated uh, to step in, even if it's just for our survival, but hopefully to be bigger people um, in this Mm -hmm. conversation and and impact it um, because we can um, because there, are, there is a lot of money spent on events and, and some of the more shallow stuff in the cannabis industry that could certainly go to much better uses and probably gain much better traction in your communities by uh, showing yourself as a good community steward. You know, that's My businesses have thrived because we engage community. We don't put ads in newspapers or magazines. You know, it's not about uh, the commerce of it. It's about the social uh, impact of it. I wish more businesses in general outside of the cannabis industry got involved in these topics. Um, But that's what we're trying to do. And and this group, ASAP, uh, which is uh, fueling a lot of the efforts that I'm getting involved in now is uh, the Alternative Solutions Advocacy Project. And it's really led by the Interfaith Alliance, which is uh, a coalition of uh, faith-based organizations that uh, cover everything under the sun, uh, working together on social issues, working to solve them together with without regard for their differences religiously um, uh, and it's funded by uh, the Buck Foundation which is run by one of my good friends now PJ D'Amico got arrested you know, the other morning for being a pain in the ass to Denver police uh, <laughs> videotaping and getting too close to him and, and doing all the things that he loves to do to rattle rouse um, but we ended up uh, sleeping outside the city the city county building the other morning um, because uh, they do these sweeps there's Uh, as as Rochelle said, in Denver, they do in a lot of cities, but Denver, they've gotten really aggressive, especially as it gets cold out, where we have anywhere from four to 5,000 homeless people every night in Denver. Uh, Some some estimates say 10,000, it's probably more four to five. And four to 500 of those sleep, physically, literally on the streets every night uh, for a lot of reasons. Shelters are disgusting, uh, men and women get broken up, families get split up when you go to these because they're all men or all women or, or all trans, um, and and they, they're they're just disgusting and filthy. People get sick and you can't sleep because people have mental problems and they're screaming. like they're, they're just not places where people can survive, so they'd rather sleep out on the streets. What's happening now is Denver police is going by every three hours, day and night, and going through this process of enforcing the Urban Camping Ban, which is passed by Mary Hancock and Alice Brooks. It's kind of funny that the two worst people uh, for people of color uh, in this city of Denver are the two black people with the most power. Um, Drives me absolutely insane. Um, But nonetheless, they enforce this and and they have this order of process. Uh, So cops will come by and they'll issue a verbal warning and say, Sir, you're covered up on the sidewalk. You're in violation of the the urban camping ban. Uh, You can't be here.
0: And to clarify, to clarify, the urban camping ban allows people to sleep on the sidewalk, but not if they're covered. So it's the being covered by either a blanket or a tent that makes it illegal. So what, what Denver police is saying is like, we're, you're, we're OK with you occupying this public space as long as you're basically freezing to death.
3: Yes. So they, they give this the verbal warning, they give the written warning, and then they come by and issue the citation. And at that citation point is when you see the blankets get taken because the blankets and the pads are taken as evidence of that
1: citation. Um, so, so they confiscate the things that are physically keeping them warm and alive on the street.
3: Exactly. And then mm-hmm. they, they, they literally say uh, verbatim, uh, you can sleep here all night if you want, but you can't be covered up. You're in violation of the urban camping bans. So like Rochelle said, they're essentially saying you can sleep here, but we w- we'd like you to freeze to death. So mm-hmm. the cops will say that or move along. And now we have this campaign that ASAP came out with, which is move along to where? And it says that we really need to pursue housing first, but we know that's going to take some time. But what can we do to get these four to 500 people uh, that are living outside all winter? through that winter without freezing to death. Um, So we're working with churches right now, synagogues, mosques, that are uh, housing up to eight people on their property in tents because the city can't them. Um, It's on private property. And we're going to make these statements all over the city with all these private property owners housing up to eight homeless people on their properties, because that's the limit, the cap, before you have to provide certain amenities and and services Mm -hmm. and things like that on a property for unrelated people living together. Um, So there's a lot of short-term and long-term solutions in motion. sleeping outside uh, once every two weeks. Uh, with the homeless population, uh, not just to, to gain, um, you know, uh, visibility on it, but also to protect them because they're less likely to interfere when, th- when the people who run these faith-based organizations or organizations or businesses are out there camping with them. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're they less likely to, to arrest us, and they're for them uh, because of it. And uh, ultimately it gains their trust, which I think is really important in this because the folks that are at their worst, uh, anybody living on the streets is very distrustful pretty much at anyone <laughs> um, mm-hmm. because you, you've been you've been f-ed just by everything along the way and had nothing but more barriers put up in front of you every time you try to uh, survive uh, mm-hmm. let alone do something good good for the progress of your life so um, it's just something that is has been going on for a couple years here now in denver um it, the, the sweeps are getting more egregious the reason we went in front of city council is because there's three spots downtown uh, that house uh, the majority of these four to five hundred on the streets every night and the police generally sweep it they clean it up and then they allow people to go set up their camps again Um, Mm. but what they did that day is swept them and then put cops there posted them there so that people could not come back so all of a sudden we just displaced four to five hundred people in one day and they were fed Mm. up and wanted to sleep in front of the county building but cops were there for five (laughs) hours 11 p.m to 4 a.m 9 to 15 cops the entire Mm. time no less than Six cop cars doing oh, well. nothing but harass harassing people trying to survive think about the money that I was, was in a lot of security on services, this enforcement yeah. that could mm-hmm. have been put to ha- putting these people in a f-ing hotel for what like the we could totally pay for the services and the housing that we need to if we weren't mm-hmm. being so egregious in the enforcement of some like this
1: mm-hmm and I know that you said at the beginning there that this is something that even if the cannabis industry is not responsible for, uh, that it's something that they should be involved with, just like probably, you know, any other part of social services and helping out with improving the city that, that they're located in. And, and I do totally agree with that. And I wonder, um, do you do you see is there like a higher proportion of cannabis businesses that get involved with, with giving back to the community than the, the general business world? I know that you've got uh, kind of your finger in a lot of pies in terms of different businesses and, and the larger business community that you see. Do you think that there is a higher volunteering or, or, or community focus in the cannabis industry or is there still a long ways to go there?
0: Or should there be or should there be if there isn't uh, because of our social justice roots?
3: All fair (laughs) questions. Yeah, you know,
0: none of of these are the gotcha question yet.
3: (laughs) That's good. Wait, you know, I would I would say personally, I would like the cannabis industry to be different than traditional business and feel an obligation to social uh, just be socially conscious. Um, And I think that one, I I like that because I was an advocate and I I was in this involved in this before there was money, uh, before it was about that business. uh, so, so I'm I, I'm in it for those reasons. There are a lot in it for those reasons. So a lot of people coming in. It's not that they don't want to. It's that they don't have that perspective. So they probably don't think about it as much. So I think it's uh, I think us in the industry that come from those grassroots uh, days uh, should feel some obligation to like spread that message. Which is why I get involved in the manner I did. Selling Denver Relief is important to free up the time to do stuff like this. Um, it was really necessary. But should the can- I mean, should we be obligated? I don't think so. But I also think the industry needs to understand that this has been prohibited for 80 years, and it's going to take some time to overcome the stigmas and the negative perception that's been put on us by that prohibition. And we owe it uh, not just to our success and our ability to thrive in business. Uh, we owe it to the social impact that we're creating by legalizing cannabis, by regulating it. Uh, we- we owe it to that social progress You're, We're we're doing nothing but letting people out of jail so they can buy more cannabis and you know, like they, <laughs> if they want to make it about business look at it that way mm-hmm. um, you know I, I I think that there's there should be that obligation but it's not a, a an obligatory thing it's just I, I think the cannabis industry can be different in a lot of ways that uh, people don't even think about this is a, a brand new industry that's going to be massive that deals with agriculture Culture, product manufacturing, patient care, uh, retail sales, marketing, culture—you uh, know—the city of Denver s- speaks all the time about how they didn't know this was going to affect every department in the city. Like can- cannabis is, is is something that impacts a little bit of everything, and I think that if we approach it with this new perspective and this need to be different um, than traditional industry, we can use those principles, those foundations in creating a best practice. But cannabis will. Uh, be treated in some fashion differently, and I hope that that progress, that innovation, bleeds back into the traditional world uh, on all those topics, and that creates more business opportunities. So I just people should look at the bigger picture and be advocates for things that are good. You know, it doesn't matter if it's your community or racial equality or whatever. I'd be an advocate for things that are good that are maybe easy for you to advocate for. Do that better than doing nothing.
0: So bringing this back to initiative 300 in the social use campaign, one piece that you guys really emphasized was the neighborhood approval. And that's like a pretty unique piece. I haven't seen that talked about anywhere else. So I kind of have a two part question or maybe a multi-part question. First, is that, is that something that any other business, um, like a permitted business in Denver has to go through that they need approval from an existing recognized neighborhood organization? Um, And two, do you think, I mean, uh, is that, like?
3: Do, do you want me to answer that one right, right quick?
0: Yeah, uh, I guess my next questions depend on whether it's a yes or a no.
3: <laughs> so first of all, I can't believe that somebody who des- who despises most government as much as I do would go hyperlocal on uh, this kind of <laughs> approval process. Uh, it- <laughs> but I, I, I go back to the concentration issue from earlier the city put the cannabis industry was like we needed to be the the bigger people so it was kind of necessary for us i think uh to get that buy-in plus it sounded sexy neighborhood supported cannabis consumption pilot program like neighborhood supported and pilot program that sounds wonderful um, so there was some aesthetical value to it i think as well uh, but no 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 other type of business has to go through that the uh, in in uh, liquor license approvals we have a th- called a needs and desires hearing where these neighborhood organizations get to come in and speak their piece and it's essentially a judge that sits there. Size and licensing, and here's uh, people that are in support of this, including the applicant, and people that are opposed to it, and why, and and looks at the the potential impact on the neighborhood, and, and says yes or no. Uh, but those needs and desires hearings are relatively shallow, and that almost all of them get approved. Like even if there's dissent, if there's people against it, they just get approved. So we wanted to go one step further and say that even before you mess with that potentially occurring at the city level, that you have to go engage your neighborhood. So no, I think it's the first time really of of, of kind for really anything. Um, that I've that I've heard of uh, not just in Denver but around the country
0: okay so does this does this then I mean it in a sense as a business owner this must be like this is a an extra frustration an extra regulatory hurdle an extra burden on the cannabis industry that no other industry has to face like once again we're being treated like second-class citizens but on the other hand there's clearly like a benefit that you've expressed in being very connected to your community And is that I mean, is that an intended side effect of this regulatory burden that you created is to make sure that, you know, cannabis businesses are getting to know their neighborhoods? Like even if you have to do this for the sake of doing it, there's an added benefit of also getting to know who else exists in the space you're coming into Occupy and hopefully begin building those community connections. Yeah, we're no doubt
3: detaching ourselves more and more from each other every day, right? I mean, less honest communication and dialogue happens every single day. It becomes shallow uh, moments of emotion that are very filtered and polished that the people put on social media. And that, like, that's just not how that's not how we live when you're at home, when you're uh, operating your business, when you're driving to work or school, walking in your neighborhood. None of that shit matters. Um, and people are just detached. So um, I, I do think that's a great consequence, unintended or intended, uh, to come out of this, I think that it makes life easier. Like I, anything worth doing is is, is probably a little more difficult on the front end at least. Um, But once you got a coalition of supporters and people that are, you know, appropriately educated about something, there's generally less dissent. There's generally more consensus when people actually sit in a room uh, and talk together. And as a business owner, one, if I could get through my neighborhood organization in the city and open one of these businesses, one, I know that I'm probably doing it uh, better or I have a higher competency than other folks. Um, And I think I take that as an advantage. I see it as a higher higher bar, uh, but not enough that it precludes people from getting in um, I I don't know I, I, I think that it makes things easier in the long run though uh, if, if you have that open dialogue you're, you're less likely to get those complaints that generally lead to the negative impacts on a business um, mm-hmm. I say why not why not just go the extra, just go the extra step people that complain about um, you know having to do more in the cannabis industry, uh, uh, more than any other businesses have to do with regard to being compliant or being educational, uh, I, you know, go away. You're not an advocate. Like <laughs> it's, it's been prohibited for 80 years. Like you, mm-hmm. you have to. You have to push back in the other direction. That unfortunately takes effort, guys. Um, mm-hmm. So. Uh, I just I can't stand a lot of the kind of crybaby, the whiners that are in the cannabis industry because I've lived it a lot worse than most of the people. that go to these business conferences and stuff like that in in life mm-hmm. and business. Um, so taking taking some punches is good for you in a lot. I guess I mm-hmm. guess is it. And there are and and back to you know um, the the types of organizations that are doing it. Like we have four or, four or five, even though it's going to be. Uh, harder probably to get more uh, all the people on board or most people on board There are some people that are very excited about this especially in neighborhoods that are a little underserved that like Colfax here, or Santa Fe Arts District or uh, Some lower-income neighborhoods that have retail they sit and vacant and things like that mm-hmm. This is an opportunity for life uh, for mm-hmm. people to come to the neighborhoods to create a differentiator that maybe some of these more Pretentious districts art districts and shopping districts in Denver won't allow Cherry Creek Rhino I don't know if they're gonna go after this they've got too many people that that are afraid of cannabis going there. Um, mm-hmm. But these other neighborhoods can really get a lot of people from all around the city to come there and and hopefully kick off something a little bigger outside of cannabis.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, and I really do think that the neighborhood approach does make a lot of sense with something so new and that people are kind of nervous about and that giving that kind of local control uh, to those communities will then help open the door to, oh, On-site cannabis consumption actually, you know, isn't as scary as I thought it would be. And so in that way, kind of paving the the way for opening it up more later or at least uh, having people have a better understanding there. And unfortunately, we are coming up on our time here. But I did have one last quick question before we get to the call to action. Um, I saw that Rochelle had mentioned in some of our, our show notes that you're organizing something called the Expungement Fair. Uh, in March 2017, and just that name is really intriguing to me, and I haven't heard about this yet, so I just really want to know uh, what exactly is that. So
3: these expungement clinics, as uh, I think they've been executed as before, are really just uh, people uh, having somebody helping them with the expungement process. Uh, sometimes it's funded by by grants or. Uh, sponsors or donors or whatever. Sometimes people are paying for it, but the legal's free. Uh, there's all, all different uh, myriad ways in which people execute these. Um, but what I'm uh, hoping to do is take the folks that are already doing it in Colorado, uh, combine them with the Minority Cannabis Business Association, which I sit on the board of directors for it. I'm chatting with uh, with Jesse Horton about this, um, about creating something that does those expungements and uh, helps facilitate that and, and gets lawyers involved, um, but also have educational services uh, symposium around it, um, around this and adjacent issues um, that could deal with homelessness, that could deal with drug policy, um, that, that, that speak to some of the issues of uh, what put that uh, criminal record together in the first place, um, to, to chat about what people can do to get involved in that and make sure they don't have a criminal record again um, by being a part of the process. So just engaging a little beyond the administrative only. Um, expungement clinic and making it something that's interactive and and brings a lot of different diverse folks into a a dialogue about how we can change laws and then that feeds upstream to students for sensible drug policy and NCIA and the the business initiatives and and 300 it's it's just educating people about uh, social and drug policy in general Um, I think we're going to get a long ways in our society.
1: Awesome.
0: Well as Sam said we are up on our time And we always wrap up our discussions with a call to action since educating people is pretty useless if we're not also using our knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place. So if you could have listeners do one action right now, what would you ask them to do?
3: I would. I think that when folks help or when they, when they volunteer, they think of that doing something that has to be tangible, like an effort getting out. And, and while that's very much appreciated, um, uh, people also, we need, we need a lot of money right now uh, to fight uh, what's going on on a federal level. Um, so donating to causes that are probably uh, being threatened, uh, LGBT rights, um, people of color, uh, so ACLU, uh, Anti-Defamation League, uh, there's a bunch of organizations that could use the money, uh, but also just offering the resources to be a part of a call bank, or uh, there, there's a, there's just a lot of things, ask, ask people that run these organizations, DPA, SSDP, MPP, whoever, um, what you can do to help given your resources and what you're most capable of offering, they will find something for you to do that will help the organization and it could be you know 10 minutes a week 15 20 minutes a week like all this shit adds up especially when you have thousands of people doing it so just do whatever you can to get involved i think if you do it honestly in a way that fits into your life uh, you'll find that it'll probably only grow at least it's done that in me so
1: Awesome. Thank you. And we'll be sure to throw up the links to many of those organizations there on our uh, website post for folks who want to click on those and donate. And so, uh, yeah, so thank you so much again for coming on and speaking with us today. Uh, Again, for our listeners, this has been Kayvon Kalibari talking about Initiative 300 and many other marijuana policy things in the city of Denver. So thank you so much, Kayvon.
3: Thank you much, guys. Really
0: appreciate it. Nice seeing you. Thanks for listening to episode 73 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and myself, Rochelle Young. This show is produced by Tyler Williams and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests, news stories, and forecasts. Also... This Week in Drugs is an all-volunteer project. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support our work, please check out our Patreon page, which is linked to on our website. This allows you to commit a small monthly donation to help defray the cost of our web hosting fees. So that's all for Episode 73 of This Week in Drugs. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song this week is First Few Feet by Ten and Eight.